Last week's sermon was a response to a new Unitarian Universalist Association report titled, Who's in Charge Here? The Complex Relationship Between Ministry and Authority. And all that stuff that I said about authority and that complex dance between authority and accountability, between cooperation and control, all that's very much still relevant as we talk about uh, nonviolent activism and when to follow your conscience. And I quoted last week Thomas Jefferson's words in the Declaration of Independence that governments derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. And by grounding the formation of this country on the consent of the governed, Jefferson was rejecting the so-called divine right of kings. The idea that a monarch's right to rule is ordained by God and cannot be justly questioned. Jefferson was asserting the revolutionary enlightenment idea that if the people do not like the way that things are in a society, then we the people can demand change at even the highest levels of society. In Henry David Thoreau's 1849 essay, Civil Disobedience, which he originally titled Resistance to Civil Government, I hear a similarly radical declaration of independence to Jefferson's writings from 73 years earlier. But Thoreau's essay is more libertarian than liberal, if you read it. Indeed, the opening words of Thoreau's essay are, I heartily accept the motto, that government is best which governs least. And I should like to see it acted up to more rapidly and systematically. Carried out, it finally amounts to this, which I also believe, that government is best which governs not at all. And when men are prepared for it, that will be the kind of government which they have. Now that sounds less like classical liberal politicians and more like the politics of Ron Paul or the anti-tax lobbyist Grover Norquist, who famously said, I don't want to abolish government, I simply want to reduce it to the size that I can drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub. And paralleling Jefferson's words that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to the ends, and by ends he meant life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government. Thoreau wrote later in his essay that this American government, what is it but a tradition? and a recent one, endeavoring to transmit itself unimpaired to posterity, but each instant losing some of its integrity. So I bring some of this up just to note that these are fairly transgressive people saying fairly inflammatory um, ideas. Both Jefferson and Thoreau ultimately are discouraging blind, unquestioning allegiance to any government, even the government of this grand experiment that we call the United States of America. Now, as some of you may remember, and as Laura alluded to in the story, Thoreau's personal act of civil disobedience that his essay refers to was being a tax resistor as a form of protest for how those tax dollars were used to support both slavery and the Mexican-American War. In a sentence that could easily have been written about the Iraq War, Thoreau wrote, quote, Witness the present Mexican War the work of a comparatively few individuals using the standing government as their tool. For in the outset, the people would not have consented to this measure. History repeats itself. 
And when a tax collector confronted Thoreau in 1846 about his six years of delinquent taxes, he was arrested for still refusing to pay. He was released again, as Laura said, after being held overnight when an unnamed friend or family member paid his taxes against his wishes. Though it would have been interesting to see how long he might have enjoyed staying in jail. He seemed to enjoy his night there, but... uh We Unitarian Universalists like to claim Thoreau as one of our Unitarian forebears, and although Thoreau did have strong Unitarian influences in his life, the caveat should be added that he was perhaps more interested in individual transcendentalism than institutionalized religion. He would, however, have strongly supported our UU fifth principle of the right of conscience. And a strong theme in Thoreau's essay is the importance of following your conscience. He writes, Must the citizen ever for a moment or in the least degree resign his conscience to a legislator? Why has every man a conscience then? The only obligation which I have the right to assume is to do at any time what I think right. Now that could be a dangerous thing to do. But he continues, if an injustice is of such a nature that it requires you to be the agent of injustice to another, I say break the law. Let your life be a counter friction to stop the machine. So that's Thoreau in 1849, rage against the machine. (laughs) But Thoreau believed in Augustine's ancient adage that an unjust law is no law at all. And I think many people are saying today that one of the biggest problems in the Trayvon Martin case is that that strop and frisk law is a terrible, terrible law that's causing people to take stands and is getting people killed. Thoreau's essay has also influenced many other nonviolent activists, from Tolstoy to Gandhi to Martin Luther King Jr., who wrote in his autobiography that as a student he read Thoreau's essay and was so deeply moved that I reread it several times. I became convinced that non cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. As Unitarian Universalists, another important piece of our history is the courage of the UU-associated publishing house, Beacon Press, which continues into this day, to be the first to publish the complete 7,000 pages of the Pentagon Papers. So the New York Times, you may remember, had published excerpts, but Beacon Press was the first to publish all 7,000 pages about the U.S. government's involvement in Vietnam. The civil disobedience of their publication led Beacon Press into a spiral of two and a half years of harassment, intimidation, near bankruptcy, and the possibility of criminal prosecution by the U.S. government. Daniel Ellsberg, you may remember, is the name of the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers. And history has, for the most part, judged Ellsberg's civil disobedience, as well as Beacon Press's decision to aid him to be right, courageous, and heroic. But judging whether an act of civil disobedience is right and whether we may personally want to defend it or join in is much harder in the moment. Take, for example, the much more controversial case of Edward Snowden, who's seeking asylum in another country in the wake of another similar act of civil disobedience, leaking information to the press about the U.S. government's mass surveillance program. Are they listening? I don't know. Uh, I'll let you know. 
from talking with some of you about Snowden's actions, I know that there are very nuanced and conflicting views in this congregation and among UUs generally. I had some conversations with UU ministers at General Assembly. Very nuanced but conflicting views about whether Snowden's act of civil disobedience was right, wise, and worthy of support. For what it's worth, I think it's interesting that Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers, you may have seen he published an opinion piece in the Washington Post on July 7th that said the following. Snowden believes that he has done nothing wrong, and I agree wholeheartedly. More than 40 years after my unauthorized disclosure of the Pentagon Papers, such leaks remain the lifeblood of a free press and our republic. One lesson of the Pentagon Papers and Snowden's leaks is simple. Secrecy corrupts, just as power corrupts. In my case, my authorized access in the Pentagon and Rand Corporation to top-secret documents, which became known as the Pentagon Papers after I disclosed them, taught me that Congress and the American people had been lied to by successive presidents and dragged into a hopelessly stalemated war, he's referring to Vietnam, that was illegitimate from the start. Now, you may or may not agree with Ellsberg's assessment, and just because he did something 40 years ago doesn't necessarily make him right about Snowden. As the old saying goes, where one person sees a freedom fighter, another sees a terrorist. To explore this dynamic further, I'd like to share a story with you about one of my first close encounters with civil disobedience. It was the summer of 2002, and I was spending two weeks as a volunteer member of an intentional community called Koinonia Farms in America's Georgia. Koinonia is the Greek New Testament word for community. How many of you know about Koinonia Farms or any of its history? Just a few. All right, clearly a future sermon is in order. Uh, Koinonia Farms, briefly, was founded back in 1942 with the intention of providing a place where blacks and whites could live and work together. Notice that date. 1942. Notice the location, the Deep South. Koinonia attempted to form an interracial community in Georgia more than a decade before the civil rights movement really got underway in 1955 with Rosa Parks and the Montgomery bus boycott. Even that famous landmark segregation case, a desegregation case, Brown versus the Board of Education, that was 1954. The history of Koinonia Farms, again, deserves its own sermon, including how it led to the start of Habitat for Humanity. But the reason I'm bringing it up now is that about halfway through the two weeks I spent there as a volunteer almost a decade ago, I thought I was there just to help with the farm and do some agriculture and learn some about the history. The director approached me unexpectedly and asked if I'd be willing to drive him about an hour away to the courthouse where his nephew was going to be on trial for an act of civil disobedience. And he didn't drive. He was a farmer from the Midwest. And just he's like, I drive tractors. I don't drive on the interstate, is what he told me. So we ended up attending three days of the week-long trial of protesters arrested for illegally crossing the line onto the property of Fort Benning, a U.S. Army post outside of Columbus, Georgia. They were part of a nonviolent activist movement seeking to call attention to the U.S. Army School of the Americas, or SOA for short. Founded in 1946, SOA is a U.S. training facility for Latin American soldiers and military personnel and is funded by our U.S. tax dollars. Perhaps there's some parallels that are coming to mind here of Thoreau's refusal to pay taxes that would support the Mexican-American war that could bring slavery to Mexico. Now, human rights activists have for many years criticized the School of the Americas graduates for committing human rights violations in Latin America. 
As the New York Times wrote in 1996, Americans can now read for themselves some of the noxious lessons that the U.S. Army taught to thousands of Latin American military and police officers at the School of the Americas during the 80s. A training manual recently released by the Pentagon recommended interrogation techniques like torture, execution, blackmail, the arresting of relatives of those being questioned, some practices which some of the school's graduates enthusiastically applied once they had returned home, violate basic human rights and the Army's own rules and procedures. So what they're saying is, we, the U.S. Army, can and must do better than this. We know better than this. Why are we teaching this for people to do in Latin America? They, have, they defy the professed goals of American foreign, foreign policy and foreign military training programs. Though the manual was taken out of use in 91 and the school's curriculum modified to include some instructions in human rights standards, the school does little to advance American interests and should be closed down, in the opinion of the New York Times editorial board. Now, in 2001, the SOA was renamed the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation and reformed, but then you get into, was it really reformed or not? And it's a fairly controversial. Have any of you heard of the School of the Americas or followed, followed some of it in the past? All right. So when I asked some of the protesters about this change, they maintained that this name change, as far as they could see, was a surface change that was meant to be a distraction. They carried placards that said, different name, same shame. Now, thousands gather at Fort Bennett uh, annually to protest outside the gate, carrying crosses and coffins in memory of victims of SOA graduates. In the trials I watched, 43 people had taken the next step from legal protest to civil disobedience of crossing the line onto Fort Benning property. The U.S. government chose to press charges against 37 of the 43 protesters. Those who crossed the line did so for many different reasons, but the most common I heard was to give voice to the voiceless in Latin America and to shine a spotlight on atrocities being committed by those uh, trained by U.S. tax dollars and, and on U.S. soil. To echo MLK's words after reading Thoreau, those 43 protesters became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Now, among those 37 who engaged in civil disobedience was an elderly Franciscan monk wearing those traditional friar's black robes with a white rope belt tied around his waist, a few older members of Catholic worker houses, and quite a few uh, men and women in their 20s. I'd like to tell you about just two of those young people, Richard and Palmer, one of whom was the nephew of the director, Palmer. Richard had worked in Guatemala and, and witnessed the violence of SOA graduates firsthand. As an Anglo, he was not harmed. On the stand, he said, I will return to Guatemala if I'm sentenced. I will still return. But I can't go back and tell those people that I wrote a letter to my congressional representative or I picketed with a sign. Those are fine measures, but the disappearances, the torturing, the military oppression, it has to stop now. Something must be done. For me, crossing that line and being on trial to talk to you, he was referring to the judge, the media, and all the others here today, the word must be spread, the SOA must be closed. After being in Guatemala, I have been burdened with knowledge. Now you, judge, and all of you here are burdened with that same knowledge.
All his relatives and friends, of course, became more aware of this issue through Richard's act of civil disobedience. I had vaguely heard of the SOA, but I certainly learned a lot more about it as a result of being asked to go and drive this uncle whose nephew had engaged in this act. Here's a similar testimony from Palmer. As a teenager, I didn't care much that my clothes were made in sweatshops, that my tax dollars were going to terrorize, torture, and kill those who attempted to organize a union in those sweatshops. As I began to find out more, I told others about what I'd learned. I was naive at first and thought that what was missing was knowledge. Then came a time, a moment of knowing that if I didn't act, then these people and groups would continue to be in harm's way. And I just couldn't be a hypocrite anymore. Sometimes you have to speak truth to power. Sometimes you have to do what is right despite the consequences. Generally, the law guides us in what is right, but sometimes something inside us, some call it love, some call it God, tells us that the law is not right. So you, judge, have a choice. During the Holocaust, Hitler's willing executioners were complicit in his crimes, even though they were within the law. The SOA graduates haven't killed all the union organizers, the peace protesters, all the people working for human rights and fair wages and the environment, but they've killed many in order to intimidate the rest. You, judge, can slow down the process. When you find me guilty, I want you to look me in the eye. You're complicit in allowing these atrocities to continue. You're oppressing them. You're also oppressing yourself. Now, the judge didn't like that. Uh, The maximum sentence for illegally crossing onto Fort Benning property is six months in jail and a $5,000 fine. But if convicted, the descendants see themselves as prisoners of conscience. During the proceedings, the judge argued that a breach of the law is a breach of peace. But many defendants responded with that same Augustinian adage that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, ironically, the courtroom had this huge quote embossed on the side wall from President Jimmy Carter that said, there is one law for all, the law of humanity and justice. Both Richard and Palmer were given jail sentences. Now, I'd come to Koinonia Farms because I admired that groundbreaking anti-racism work that that community's founder had done decades earlier. But I stumbled into a contemporary act of civil disobedience, what some might call holy obedience to your conscience or to the spirit of life. And the consequences for nonviolent activism can be severe, as the followers of MLK learned when they were beat down with billy clubs and hosed down with um, water hoses and confronted with dogs. Now, after the service today, if you have time to stay, and you'll see some more about this in your order of service, at 1230 in room 113, 115, if you take a right instead of um, going left to leave, um, we're screening the documentary Bitter 70. It's about 73 minutes. Uh, about Tim DeChristopher, who's a University of Utah law student and member of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Salt Lake City, Utah, who in 2008, in an act of civil disobedience, became, bitter 70, in an oil and gas auction. He bid $1.8 million to win 22,000 acres around Utah's national parks. 
The problem, of course, was he had in his bank account nowhere near $1.8 million. And eventually the auction was invalidated. But if Tim hadn't acted, the invalidation would likely have come too late. That formerly pristine land around Utah's national parks would likely have already been drilled. But despite the eventual invalidation of the auction, Tim served 21 months in prison. He was released on a three-year probation in April of this year and will be attending Harvard Divinity, this, Harvard Divinity School this fall to become a UU minister. Bitter 70 tells his story of sacrifice and civil disobedience on behalf of the UU seventh principle, the interdependent web of all existence. This invites us to remember our relationship to this one earth. And after the vital first source of UUism, direct experience, which you know to be true because you've experienced it firsthand for yourself, the second source of our liberal religious tradition is the words and deeds of prophetic men and women which challenge us to confront powers and structures of evil with justice, with compassion, and with the transforming power of love. But the challenge is not only to study and admire those prophetic men and women, Thoreau, King, Gandhi, Dorothy Day, Tim to Christopher, and so many others, but to discern when and if your conscience might call you to follow in their footsteps of civil disobedience to protest an unjust law or to call attention to injustice. And addressing how difficult it can be for those of us who live relatively comfortable lives to choose civil disobedience, Sharon Welch has written that it's easier to give up on long-term social change when one is relatively comfortable in the present, when it's possible to have challenging work, excellent health care and housing, and access to fine arts. When the good life is present or within reach for you, it's tempting to despair of it ever being in reach for others and resort to merely enjoying it for yourself and for your family. Being so easily discouraged in social justice work is the privilege of those accustomed to too much power and accustomed to having their needs met without negotiation and work, accustomed to having a political and economic system that responds to their needs. The work of anti-racism, of anti-oppression, of cultivating a multicultural community is hard work, but we must not be discouraged. The words of Sweet Honey in the Rock again come to mind. Until the killing of black men, black mother's sons, is as important as the killing of white men, white mother's sons, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Now, neither myself nor any other person can answer the question for you of when and if your conscience may call you to engage in an act of civil disobedience or holy obedience. But I can tell you that you're part of a tradition that encourages you to pay attention to your conscience and to notice when your conscience is telling you that the right, the good, the true, and the beautiful is different from what everyone else, even the government, tells you is right and good and true and beautiful. As Jefferson and Thoreau taught us, if we the people do not like the way things are, then we the people can demand change even at the highest levels of society. In a few moments, we're going to sing together the first four verses of hymn number 170. You can go ahead and turn to that if you want. We are a gentle, angry people. 
This song is written in response to the 1978 murder of Harvey Milk, a gay member of the San Francisco City Council. As we sing together, I invite you to continue to reflect on the places that your conscience may be calling you to challenge injustice with justice, compassion, and the transforming work of love. I'll say that one more time. Is there a place where your conscience is calling you to challenge injustice and unjust law with justice, with compassion, and with the transforming power of love?